Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. This past Thursday was Ascension Day, which makes this Sunday Ascension Sunday in the church calendar. Now, if I were to ask you, why is the cross of Christ important? Most of us, I think, would have an answer to give. If I asked you, why is the resurrection of Christ important? Again, a lot of us, most of us, would have a good answer to give. If I asked you, why is the ascension of Christ important? My inkling is, far fewer of us would really have an in-depth answer to be able to offer, because it's not something that we talk about as often. And yet, when you read the creeds of the early church, you read the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, it's right there alongside the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming, which tells us to the early church, to the apostles, this was an absolutely non-negotiable, essential, central doctrine of the faith. And yet to us, I think it seems like an afterthought. It seems like a footnote. It seems kind of like, you know, we, we, we go from the cross to, you know, the resurrection Sunday, and then because we're, you know, charismatic church, we skip right to Pentecost. We like that one. And it seems like the the ascension is just this little, like, it's like a hyphen or something, but just to get us to Pentecost. And yet, that's not how scripture views it. That's not how the early church viewed it. So I want to focus on this important doctrine this morning and find out why it's so important, what difference it makes to our walk with Jesus, and what we're going to find out is it especially makes a difference in the midst of our suffering. Okay, so... I'm just going to pray as we begin. Father, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit right now to illuminate your scripture to us once again, right in this moment. Would you open our minds to have the mind of Christ, open our hearts to have the heart of Christ, Lord, and would you activate our wills to be the hands and feet of Christ as we learn from your word today. Speak, Father God, your servants are listening. Amen. Okay, so what are we talking about when we talk about the ascension? If you know the story of Easter, the ascension is what happened 40 days after Jesus resurrected. He spent 40 days walking, teaching, eating, barbecuing on the beach with the disciples, and appearing to many, many people, it says. And after those 40 days... Acts 1 tells us this, and we'll see it up on the screen. Acts 1 tells us, Jesus said to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And so the book of Acts written by Luke, we believe, and and Luke's gospel ends with these words in Luke 24, 52. It says, 
this, he gives us their reaction. It says they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So Jesus dies on the cross. He resurrects. He spends 40 days teaching them. And then he ascends, meaning he literally goes into the air and leaves them. And it says the disciples were filled with great joy. Does anyone find this just slightly strange? You know, Jesus like levitating and disappearing. This is slightly strange, right? To us modern people, but it was just as weird to them. If you, if you, if you read on in, in Acts, the angels appear to the disciples and they're all just like staring in the sky and, and the angels are like, what are you guys looking at? The same way he left, he's coming back. So they, they found it just as hard to accept what was going on around them in the resurrection and the ascension as we do. But because of the strangeness of this, it leaves us with a lot of questions. You find yourself asking, well, where did he go? Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space during the, the space race in the, in the early 60s, I think, he, go, he went up, first man in orbit, and he said, I looked and I didn't see God or heaven. Right? And I, I mean, some of us remember that. I, I re, I've read about it. And where did Jesus go? Did he just float up into space? Is heaven really up? What if you're in Australia? <laughs> Is heaven down then? Like, spatially, what are we talking about here? But I think even more strange than that is, why are they so happy about it? And I think it's probably because we're only really familiar with these short descriptions that we find in Luke. It's really only Luke in the beginning of Acts that directly describes the event. I think if that's all we read, the ascension feels a little bit like, you know, just a curiosity. We can see how the cross is relevant to us because it's about the forgiveness of sins. We can see how the resurrection is relevant to us because it's about new life and life after death. But how exactly is the ascension relevant to us? Well, we're going to find out, even though we only have these two short descriptions of the event of the ascension that, you know, is describing what the disciples actually witnessed, the ascension, you find it underlying the whole of the New Testament writings. It's assumed and it's shaping the thinking of Paul and Peter and all the writers of the New Testament documents in basically everything they say. Because, and I think that part of the reason is, they understood intuitively what for us takes a little bit of explanation to understand. And it's this, that the ascension, this is the first point, the ascension is King Jesus taking his throne. That's what's happening. So when Jesus preached the gospel, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God has arrived. It's at hand. It is near and so when Jesus preached the gospel, the gospel according to Jesus is not about, you know, something you pray so that when you die, you go to heaven. It was the proclamation that the kingdom is here. Why? Because the king was here. Now, 
The word gospel, we get evangelism comes from the word evangelion. That was the, the Greek word from which we get gospel. Actually, kind of cool. The word gospel is old English. It comes from good spell, which I think is kind of cool. But the evangelion, the, 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 that word gospel, to the original audience, it was not a religious word. This was a completely, entirely political word. It was the word that the Romans used whenever Caesar would have a victory. You know, Caesar was off conquering new lands for the empire. And every time there was a victory, they would proclaim the news of that victory of Caesar in every corner of the empire. And that was the proclamation of the Evangelion. That was the gospel. Caesar is Lord over this new territory. That was the message. And so here we have Jesus coming in and saying, the kingdom is at hand. This is the gospel. The true king has arrived. So is it any wonder that his audience interpreted what he had to say politically? And you remember the sign that was hung over Jesus' head as he was executed by the Romans as a political traitor. Crucifixion was usually a punishment reserved for political enemies and and insurrectionists and, and rebellious criminals. It said, King of the Jews, right? And he was mocked and spat on and put a crown on his head as a mockery of this political statement that he, in fact, was the true king. And yet what we see in the early church is that what the Romans meant as mockery became the first slogan of Christians around the world. Instead of saying Caesar is Lord, the Christians said Jesus is Lord. Christos kurios. Christ is Lord. He is king. And so what is the ascension? The ascension, they immediately understood, was Jesus, the true king, Ascending to his throne. Did anyone watch the, the, the coronation of King Charles a couple weeks ago? King Charles III, one person did. One, one Anglophile, two Anglophiles. It's wonderful. It's, it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's very curious for Americans to watch all the, all the pageantry and the, the great costumes. And we, we've actually, if you want to understand a little bit of what the, the disciples immediately understood was going on, just go watch that. That will give you visual imagery to picture this of what's happening spiritually in the heavenly places. Because what happened a couple weeks ago, King Charles, he was crowned. And when you go back and read the headlines, it says, King Charles's ascension. That is, that is what it is. You ascend to the throne. And so it, in, in kind of one act, there's a literal throne that he steps up on the stairs and sits on. So he's ascending in that way, but he's also ascending to the prime position of authority over the land. That's the, that's the symbolism of what it is. And that's what's happening in the ascension of Christ. And so to us, we need a little bit of explanation, but this is what they immediately understood. And I think you can see that they, they didn't, it didn't take years for them to reflect on this to understand what was happening because right in the next chapter, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, listen to what he says in Acts 2, 32. Um, so this is, this is 10 days after that event. Peter says, this Jesus God raised up and of that we were all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, 
exalted, lifted up, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So now we begin to see why exactly the disciples were happy. And I think there's two main reasons. Number one, King Jesus now rules over the universe in power. That's what's happening here. If we think of Jesus primarily as our friend, as our personal savior, then his leaving, what does it feel like? It feels like an abandonment. It feels like a, like a tragedy. And, you know, when, when, when Mary ran to the tomb and, and Jesus wasn't there and she was weeping and he appears to her in the garden and she clings to him, right? As if to say, I'm never letting you go again. And Jesus says, Mary, stop squeezing me. I am ascending to my father, right? In other words, I am your friend. I am your personal savior. But what the disciples understood immediately was he is so much more than that. He is king. And he was going to receive his kingdom and prepare a place for his people just as he promised. And here's something really cool that that I think we often don't realize is that in the incarnation, heaven touches earth. But here in the ascension, now earth touches heaven. When Jesus was here in the flesh, a bit of heaven was walking around earth. Earth and heaven met in his body. And now there's a bit of earth in heaven. There's a man on the throne of God. Jesus Christ who was born in the flesh, lived in the flesh, died in the flesh, raised in the flesh, ascended in the flesh, continues in the flesh, and will return in the flesh. Isn't that a, I mean, that blows my mind. (laughs) And Ephesians 2 says this. This is even more mind-blowing. Ephesians 2 says, anyone who's in Christ, who's united with Christ, not only shares in his death on the cross, they're not only united with him in his death, not only united with him in his resurrection, but it says we're united with him in his ascension. In chapter two, it says we are seated in the same heavenly place that he is. Over all dominion and power and authority, we are seated with Christ. And so once you see that, that that's what's happening here, you, you can pick it up. Once you've trained your eyes to see that, now you reread the New Testament, you see it everywhere. It's all over the place. And you see it underlying what the authors were writing about and why they were so filled with joy at this event. Okay, so number one, King Jesus now rules over the universe in power. But number two, the second reason they were happy is that King Jesus has now poured out the gift of his Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that when he returned to his father, he would send the Holy Spirit to empower his people to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. He'd send his spirit to indwell us, to anoint us, to to empower us for witness across the whole globe. And that's that's what you see in the next chapter of Acts. In the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out and it's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel that said he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. 
and your sons and daughters will prophesy, sons and daughters, mind you, will prophesy. And this is what propelled the apostles to the ends of the earth. Now, like, this, this is the promise that was made possible by the ascension. Do you know, everything that Jesus accomplished on Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, without the ascension, would have nothing whatsoever to do with us. Because it's only as he ascends and he sends his Holy Spirit that all the power of what he accomplished is applied and deposited within us. You see that? So this, this is why this is a central doctrine. And huh, I've, I've been a little bit in... No, I've been in mourning the last couple days as, as one of my heroes in the faith, Tim Keller, passed away. And I re-listened to one of his messages on, on the ascension the last couple days. And I loved this picture that he used that he said, if you, you think of the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection, you think of it as like this, this stick of dynamite, this, this full of explosive potential to rearrange everything, then you should think of the ascension as the detonator of that dynamite. That the ascension is what sets it off in the world and explodes the church out into the witness of Christ into the world. And so without the ascension, the cross, the resurrection, it has no power in our lives. But with it, what happens is Jesus is no longer bound by time and space. He's no longer bound to be in one place at one particular time. Now, because he's on the throne, he's outside of time and space. Now he's present everywhere. He's able to distribute his spirit freely across all time and space to empower all believers. And so now do you, do you see why the disciples were happy about this? Why they went away to the temple rejoicing continually about this? So I think I think Tim Keller was right that we need to meditate on the the reality, the meaning, the power of the ascension until we begin to get a taste of that joy that, that the apostles had. We need to meditate on it until we begin to get that joy that they had. They went out in the power of that joy and that the, the, the empowerment of that, that, that event is what set off the church. The first few centuries of the church, as the apostles went out, historians tell us, by the end of the first century, as the first generation, the, the early witnesses of Jesus were, were dying out, there was probably, there, there was around 20,000 followers of the way by the end of the first century. By the end of the third century, 200 years later, there were more than 20 million. That is exponential growth. And of course, not too long after that, it became a legal and then a official religious practice of the Roman Empire. But in the first 300 years, do you realize hundreds of thousands, some historians believe maybe millions of people died proclaiming Jesus as Lord for that claim that political challenge to the empire of Rome and to Caesar to say Jesus is the true king. And so the church exploded even despite violent persecution. And if you pay attention, you might notice a little bit of a 
tension in what I've just said. Because I've just told you, Jesus ascended to the throne. He became king of the universe. He sent his Holy Spirit to empower his people to complete the mission on earth. And yet I've told you in the next breath that they suffered persecution for 300 years. They continue to suffer persecution now across the world. And many millions over those 2,000 years have faced death in following Jesus. And so it raises an important question for us today, which is this. How can Jesus really be on the throne if there's still so much suffering and evil? Because if you look around us, if we're honest, you might be a a, a very faith-filled, optimistic, positive person, but if, if we're honest, it doesn't look like Jesus is on the throne much of the time. And so we rationalize, okay, well, maybe this is true in a, in a spiritual sense. Or maybe it's true kind of in some, some distant future. But we really do wonder, well, what, what use is this doctrine now? What difference does it actually make if there's still so much wrong with the world? And never mind the world, if there's still so much wrong with me, my life. So that's really the question that I want us to focus on this morning. And we're going to do that by reading from Romans chapter 8, where we see the, the Apostle Paul, like I told you, the, the ascension is underlying so much of all of the rest of the New Testament. In Romans 8, we see the Apostle Paul applying the truth of the doctrine of the ascension to our lives and especially to our suffering. All right, so we're going to read a, a long portion of chapter 8 and stop as we go along the way. We're going to start in verse 15. Okay, and we're, as we go through this, you're going to see how Paul is, is, is he's, he's assuming the truth of the ascension as he expounds this passage. So verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So so notice, he's referencing Jesus' promise of sending the Holy Spirit that is received and indwelling his people. It's one of the two great truths of the ascension. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So here we get the second great truth of the ascension that we're talking about. Jesus, the heir, the, 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 the king of heaven, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, which it actually goes on to say later on in this passage. And then he says that application in, in Ephesians 2, that we are co-heirs. We're seated with him. Now here's what comes next. Here's why what comes next is so, there's so much tension in it. All right, we're fellow heirs with Christ, Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is not the part that you find on the Hobby Lobby signs and the the Christian bumper stickers, right? (laughs) So Paul's saying, hear what he's saying. He's saying, even though Jesus is on the throne... 
even though we're seated with him, we have, we're seated with him with all power and authority over all the principalities and, 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 and powers of the darkness, and yet suffering is part of our journey with Jesus. And what he seems to be saying is we don't get to choose whether or not we suffer. We don't get to choose whether we suffer. We only get to choose whether we will suffer with him or without him. And if we suffer with him, he says the promise is that we will also be glorified with him. Okay, so he goes on in verse 18 to talk about these sufferings. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now usually, just to pause here, usually when Paul's talking about sufferings, he's, he's referring to persecutions. But watch what he does here. In verse 19, he goes on, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So so Paul seems not only to be talking about the sufferings of persecution, he seems to be talking about the full picture of any kind of suffering within the natural world, including not just moral evil and suffering, but natural evil and suffering. He's not only talking about our fallenness morally, but he's talking about the brokenness, the fallenness of the created universe itself. And then he goes on, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And you say, well, Paul, Didn't you just say in verse 16 that we've received the spirit of adoption and we cry out, Abba, Father, so we have received it. And yet here he says, we're eagerly groaning and waiting for our adoption as sons. And so Paul's saying the kingdom is here. It's happened. It's done. We're already seated with him. He's on the throne. We have the spirit. And yet... We're still subject to decay and the brokenness of this world. And the brokenness, he even mentions it, that we all know too well, the brokenness of our bodies. Our bodies are creaking and groaning along with the the world itself. (laughs) And so the next point is the kingdom is here and it's also not yet here. The kingdom is here, and it's not fully here. It's happened, and yet we're waiting for the fullness of it to happen. We are adopted, and yet we're waiting for the fullness of our adoption, our redemption that includes... Christianity is totally unique in this, by the way, that, that it's, it's not only life after death in a spiritual sense, it's not only life after death and a physical resurrection of our bodies, but it's a, it's a recreation of the entire physical universe. So in a sense, it's not only our bodies that are resurrected, but it's 
the created world is also resurrected. It's a new heavens and a new earth. That's, that's totally unique. He goes on in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the first thing we see in the midst of a fallen and decaying world, this is how the ascension applies to us. It makes a difference in our lives is this. The ascension means purposeful hope. Yes, we are waiting. Yes, we are eagerly groaning and waiting for the redemption of our bodies and the world and the the ending of evil, but we are not those who wait in vain. We're not those who wait passively. We're not those who wait in futility. We are those who wait with purpose. And we're those who wait with hope. And without this hope of the ascension, that Jesus really is on the throne, that there really does await us a glorious, resurrected future, that he really is coming back. There really is nothing to this. If you think about it, there's nothing but futility to the human story if that's not true. If that's not true, then if you've ever read Macbeth, there's the famous line that, that life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. And if there's no ascension, Macbeth is 100% right. But if the ascension is true, it means our hope is alive. Our hope is seated on the throne. And so the ascension means purposeful hope. But secondly, the ascension means help. Thank God the ascension means help. All right, he goes on in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so, because of the ascension by which Jesus sends out his Spirit, it means we have real and present help. For any of us in suffering, for any of us, all of us, if we're not currently suffering, who will one day be in that situation. And a lot of times when when we're in that situation, what you find is, a lot of you will be able to testify to this. When you're in the middle of true suffering, a lot of times you don't know how to pray. You may not even feel that you can pray. You want to, you know that you should, you have a desire to, but you can't form the words. In other words, you're weak. And that, I think, is what Paul is talking about here, that exactly in those moments of weakness where we can't even form the words to say, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. He's doing it all the time. Even our best prayers, he's interceding with us and for us, but especially in our moments of weakness, of of, of weakness where we can't form the words of prayer, 
He's interceding for us. We don't know what we should pray, but he's groaning in our pain with us. And he's, I I love the way Dan Backens, who's our, our director of our network that we're a part of. Dan is a cancer survivor and he talks about several times in his life where, where he's experienced this. And he says, because the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, just throw something up there. Whatever you could, just, just chuck it up. And he takes it and he forms it and he perfects it and he offers it to the Father. So I, I think of it as like, you know, every, every, every white boy's basketball dream, you know, like the, I, it's like a Holy Spirit alley-oop. <laughs> I say every white boy's dream because not a lot of white boys get to live that dream of actually, you know, the dunking the alley-oop. But that's how I picture it. It's kind of like, just lob it up there and he's going to bring it home. <laughs> and so, okay, now it's at this point that we come to the most famous words in this passage. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, all of us have heard those words. If you've been in the church at all for any amount of time, you've heard these words. And likely, if you've ever been in a moment of suffering, someone has said this to you. Don't worry. All things work together for good. And you may have felt that those words were slightly cheap. And I think, it's not that they're not true. We know that they're true, but they feel kind of empty sometimes in that moment. And I think the problem is because we're kind of picking them out of the context of of everything that Paul is saying here. Because listen to what he goes on to say, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so listen to what he's saying and listen to what he's not saying. He is not saying that everything that happens is is God's, you know, uh, decreed will. That doesn't make sense. Why would the Spirit be interceding against himself. Now, I'm not saying there's no mystery here. There is a mystery of how these things fit together. But clearly, some things that happen are not God's decreed will because guess what? Sin happens, and God is not a fan of sin. I think I'm, I'm pretty safe on that one. Uh, you may disagree, but... <laughs> God is mourning with us, it says. He's groaning with us. He's interceding against these things for us. And so he's, it's not saying that everything that happens is the best possible thing that could have happened. It's not saying that either. It's saying something much more specific, I think. And this is how I would summarize it. I think it's saying, if you are in Christ and you suffer with Christ, it is making you like Christ. If you're in Christ and you're suffering with him, it's going to make you like him. A lot of times when we encounter suffering, we find ourselves thinking, and I I was asked this by someone just this week, actually a couple different people, in 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 a really hard spot, is this an attack or is this a test? 
Is this an attack of the enemy that I should be praying against and warring against? Or is this a test that I should be receiving and kind of gracefully just like accepting from God? And in some ways, the answer is yes. <laughs> Sometimes we're in a situation and we, can, we have the ability to discern the spirit that's behind it. And there's, there's often telltale signs of demonic activity. There's chaos, there's envy, there's strife, all the things that the, 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 the scripture talks about as fruit of sin and, and, and the demonic powers. In other cases, it's clear that this is something that is a test of character that is, is good for us and we can see that. But a lot of times, we're really just not in a position to know. We just, we, we don't know. So what do we do in that case? Well, I think there's something that's true in either case, and it's this. In every instance of suffering, there's always two things that are tugging at us from either side. On the one hand, and you can see this in the story of Job. Job, by the way, it's the, the Bible's book-length response to the problem of evil and suffering. I didn't say answer. I said response. <laughs> but here's what you see in the book of Job. On one hand... He's got this voice tugging him, and it's, it's the voice of the accuser. It's, it's coming through the, the voice of his, his wife in the story, and, and it's saying, Job, curse God and die. You're in suffering. Curse God and die. That's one voice tugging at him. And yet on the other side, he's got the voice tugging at him, which is saying, no, trust God and live. And I think in every instance of suffering, we're being tugged by these two possibilities. And if you've noticed, suffering usually brings out either the very worst in people or the very best in people. And in that sense, suffering is really, it's it's the great revealer of our souls. And the question that confronts us in that moment is always, where will you turn? Where will you turn? In every instance of suffering, our soul is presented with an opportunity, on the one hand, to suffer without Christ. To curse him. To turn away in anger, to separate ourselves from him. And that is the path that many, many people take. I was going through this, I prayed for so-and-so, Jesus didn't turn up. He didn't answer my prayer. So I'm done. I'm done with him. I hate him, in fact. I've heard these words from people and it's the sound of a shriveled soul. And that's what happens to you as you, as you, you suffer without Christ. It, it shrinks your soul. But in the same instance, every, opportun- every, every suffering is also an opportunity to suffer with Christ to trust him, to actually turn towards him through it. And that's the kind of suffering that actually enlarges a person's soul. And often, many of the greatest people in the faith are those that have suffered greatly. So, you know, I'm careful when I say, God, do great things with me. Paul's saying, I think, that when we suffer with him, we have hope, we have help, and we're destined for glory. We will see glory as we suffer with him. And this is why the way of Jesus grew in the way that it did and inspired 
millions and continues to inspire millions across the world to choose Jesus, to trust Jesus, and live, even if it means death now. Because they know that to curse him is to die, even if it means to live now. The early martyrs, they faced the power of the Roman Empire, and they were told, more or less, pledge allegiance to Caesar. All you have to do is pinch a little incense on the altar, say Caesar is Lord, and we'll let you live. If you can't do that, we're going to kill you. And the Christians basically said, okay, is that all you got? All you, all you can do is kill me? All you can do is make me suffer? Jesus promised me if I suffer with him, I'll become like him. And if I die, I'll be with him. So like Paul said, I've got everything to gain. Go ahead. <laughs> and, and the New Testament, you know, it, it says, submit to the authorities, honor the king. And this is exactly what the early Christians did. They were fantastic citizens. They cared for the poor. They loved their enemies. And they said, Caesar, we will submit to you. We will honor you for your position and your authority. But we can't obey you. So here's our submission. If you have to take our heads, have them. We cannot obey you because Jesus is Lord. And so the church triumphed over Rome, not by wielding the sword, but by submitting to the sword. And it's a victory that turned the world on its head because if death no, if death no longer has power over you, then what can evil possibly do to you? And so this is how Paul concludes, and so I'm going to conclude our message today. He says in verse 31, and our our musicians can come back up. I want us to close in, in worship in response to this because I think it's appropriate. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. There's the ascension again. Who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Most of the time we're asking God, how, God, separate me from this distress, this tribulation, this pain. And yet Jesus Jesus never promised us that we would be separated from the sufferings of life. What he promised us is that the sufferings would never 
be able to separate us from him. And if we suffer with him, we share in his sufferings, we become like him. So we don't have the choice of whether or not to suffer. And of course, don't, don't get me wrong. Like, don't sign up for suffering. No. None of us wants it. We pray for the least amount possible. And yet, God says, this is not just something to avoid. It's something to walk with me through. We can't avoid it entirely. The only choice is what will you cling to in your suffering? Will it cause you to turn away from Jesus and separate yourself from him? Or will it cause you to cling to him? To trust him and live even though you die? And did you notice it's not only the Holy Spirit interceding for you? Did you notice Christ himself is interceding for you? It reminds me of the time when Peter, before the crucifixion, Jesus turns to Peter, who he knows is going to betray him to to avoid suffering, but later on he's going to actually suffer and die for him. And he turns to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And so this is what I want to tell you right now. For any of you especially that are in the middle of, this might be the darkest moment in your life so far, in your your walk with God so far. Jesus is interceding for you. And he's interceding not simply to take you out of it because there's things that he wants to do in you through it. He's interceding that in the midst of it, you'll walk with him. You'll walk and cling to him in the midst of it. And so the ascension is what gives us hope that our suffering's not in vain. It's not a waiting without purpose. He's shaping us in the image of Jesus. And the ascension gives us the help of the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us in our weakness. He's on the throne. He's ruling. He's with us no matter what even as we await the kingdom in its fullness, the not yet. I just want you to to allow your heart to be fixated on Jesus, to, to think of him ascended, to meditate on his ascension until the joy of it, the power of it, the glory of it, the hope of it, the help of it begins to grab you and explode you out into the world with that same joy and power. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.